Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta per social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic... Uh, this week's topic is, should I have my employees return to the office? And, you know, we're, we're getting a point, getting to a point now here, March 2nd um, of 2021. And this is about the time when, uh, when everything really started to change. I was just, I was just noting that um, the last time I was in a restaurant was actually St. Patrick's Day of, of, of last year. And I, in retrospect, I probably should not have done that. Um, but I, I got away with it, but I have not been to a restaurant. I've not been to a restaurant since. And, you know, in the interim, we, we've had this pandemic as a riding shotgun in our lives in some fashion um, for the last year. And it has had profound effects on, on families, our economy and society politics as, as everybody listening to this podcast, I think knows, but there's now a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, uh, now four companies have had vaccines approved. I think three are in production. One is about to start. I think that's the one with uh, Johnson & Johnson, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the one of our guests who's an actual doctor may, may correct me on that. But, you know, we're seeing a light at, at, at the end of the tunnel. Um, as of this date, something on the order of about 60 million Americans have, have received at least dose one of uh, the vaccine. And the United States is currently fourth among all countries in terms of vaccinations per per thousand people. So, you know, in spite of a lot of the doom and gloom that's that's uh, that's been uh, hanging over this uh, this issue, you know, we are making progress. And so, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know when the pandemic is going to be behind us. I don't know if it's going to be behind us. You know, so so I don't know if we're if I'm going to use the term a post-pandemic decision, or a trans-pandemic or a co-pandemic decision, meaning that, you know, it's taking place along either the transition or just you know the pandemic sort of being here to stay. But but we are coming to a point now where we have new tools to manage the to manage the pandemic, and also new new tools are coming on to to treat the pandemic for those of us who fall ill with it. Uh, I believe a brand new um, antiviral cocktail was approved by the FDA either last week or two weeks ago that uh, is showing good promise. So, you know, we're, we're, we're better at treating this as well, not the route of the woods, but it is appropriate to start thinking about what is this, what does this whole thing sort of look like after, or as we move into this new phase of the, of the coronavirus pandemic. And one of those topics is, should I have my employees 
return to the office. And um, this is such a this is such a tricky question. You know, the the whole notion of our relationship with labor. I think to some extent has been called into question, you know, the, the we've, and we've discussed, we've discussed this before on the podcast a little bit, what constitutes a, um, uh, an essential worker, um, should workers be, be paid hazard pay and that, that issue's cropping up, you know, even at this late stage in the pandemic, um, you know, some employers were, were adding a hazard pay bonus, early in the pandemic and uh, some of them have stopped and I'm not going to offer an opinion as to one way or the other. That's just the facts of what's, of, of what's happening. Some companies have been very aggressive in effectively telling their employees, go away. Don't want to see you. The office is not open. Uh, others uh, have not let their employees leave because they are not comfortable with their ability to manage such employees remotely. <clears throat> and then there's been some hybrid in between at, at Bradyware for the most part, you know, we're we're, absol- we're observing at least our interpretation of best practices from a medical standpoint to keep our employees safe. But we're also making the office, and we're certainly providing everything we think is reasonably possible to enable our employees to work from home or some other place they deem safe. But we've also kept the offices open for people that want to come into the office. Um, some people really struggle with, with working from home. You know, imagine if you're a, imagine if you're a single parent, have school aged children and your schools are closed and you live in an apartment and you're trying to get meaningful work done. Uh, I thank God that I am not in that particular position and I have nothing but admiration for anybody who is able to manage that. But now we're in a position where returning to the office is be, is going to become a viable option sometime I would guess in the next six months or so, if not sooner. And and this is a multifaceted question, one with two, I think two facets in particular. And so we're going to have two guests today. One facet of this is, is what are the legal ramifications of return to work? Um, you know, when, what, for those of us who work in offices, we don't, we historically have not had to think all that much about worker safety. You know, our, our, our main concerns would be, um, you know, would we drink bad coffee or do we get a million paper cuts or, you know, worst case scenario, does a, does a disgruntled employee or former employee come back to the office and, and start making trouble? Um, but but now we have this we have this virus and people that will that could be working in close contact in a closed air uh, circulation system that's going to lead to its own challenges and then on the medical side um you know where does that where does where do best practices from a medical side mesh with interact with or perhaps even contradict what is legally required so this is a, a multifaceted discussion. Um, and, and there are business issues as well that we could get into, but we're not going to have the time. But we do have a mini panel of two um, that can help us at least unwind this in the legal perspective and the medical perspective. So in, in no particular order, uh, first joining us today is John Hyman, who is partner at Myers, Roman, Friedberg, and Lewis up in Ohio. John is a nationally recognized author, speaker, blogger, and media source on employment and labor law. 
John's legal practice provides proactive and results-driven solutions to employers' work for workforce problems. He also works with businesses to help position them to best combat the ongoing risk of cyber crimes. John serves as the outside in-house counsel role for businesses. In this role, he drafts policies and handbooks, audit human resources and technology practices and procedures, advise companies on day-to-day human resource issues, and successfully litigate employee disputes. John has written two books, The Employer Bill of Rights, A Manager's Guide to Workplace Law, and Think Before You Collect Strategies for Managing Social Media in the Workplace. John has appeared on the Fox Business Network, National Public Radio, and locally on WEWS. I think that's in Cleveland, but John will will, um, correct me. He, he has also been quoted on workplace issues in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, MSNBC.com, Business Insurance Magazine, Crane's Cleveland Business, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Finally, John appeared on a November 1999 episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire but Sadly Lacked the Fastest Fingers. John, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Dr. Jim Morrow, and I will use the honorific of Dr. Doctor only once per Jim's um, request. Um, uh, Jim was the first physician to practice in the Northside Hospital Forsyth campus in Cumming, Georgia. Opening the practice in November 1998, his practice quickly became a go-to practice for Forsyth County residents. His special areas of interest in medicine are sports medicine, episodic care, i.e. care of acute problems and illnesses chronic disease management, and urgent care. He has served as team doctor for various high schools in his many years of practice. Jim graduated from Clemson University and the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. Does Clemson University have a football team? I think I've heard of them. In 2014, uh, Jim was awarded the Steve Bloom Award by the Cumming Forsyth Chamber of Commerce as Entrepreneur of the Year, and he also received a Phoenix Award from the Metro Atlanta Chamber as Community Leader of the Year. Since 2015, Morrow Family Medicine has been voted Best of Forsyth and Family Medicine every year. The Milton location has been named Best of North Atlanta every year since it opened. Jim is also host of the To Your Health podcast, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Business Radio X. Jim, also welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So, gentlemen, I, I think I think a, a question that's on everybody's minds, I think, is a subject to a lot of debate. And I'm probably leading off with the most unfair question I could possibly think of, but but here it goes. It's the internet. Um, how close do you think we are to mass return to offices or at least an option to return? That's a hard question. Um, I told you it was going to be unfair. I, I, um, I, 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 I hate to give the stock lawyer answer, which is it depends, but I, I, think it, I think it largely does because I think every business, I think, has to decide what's right for it in its particular circumstances with what its needs are, how it best operates, and what, what its employees are comfortable doing or, or, or not doing under the circumstances. So I think for the you know, run-of-the-mill um, kind of white collar business office where people have been um, productively and effectively working remotely since uh, the world shut down a year ago. Um, the answer may be much further off in the future, if ever, that people return to the office full time for the kind of widget maker manufacturer that needs to get people on a line in order to put out product and sell product and turn a profit. Um, I think it's a much different type of answer with a with with a much different set of legal issues that that business has to consider. Jim, what do you think? As a as as a physician, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. 
You know, one of our listeners has an office been largely closed or skeleton staffed. Um, how far along do we need to be in this vaccination program before, before you think it might be medically advisable or what conditions need to be met for it to be medically advisable to open the gates and allow more people in? Well, as you started at the beginning talking about vaccines, we're very fortunate now to have vaccines available. And I think that really is the thing that's going to make all this possible. But the problem is that most of the people that are doing the work that you're talking about are not old enough to get a vaccine yet. So they're not yet vaccinated. So they're no different from what they were basically a year ago in that regard. But I think what we've got to do is get enough people vaccinated so that we can have herd immunity around the workplace. And that's 75% of people probably uh, vaccinated or with antibodies. And the problem with the antibodies from illness is it just doesn't last long enough to give you much coverage. So with Johnson & Johnson's vaccine being approved over the weekend, we suspect that by the end of July, every American who will take a vaccine will have an opportunity to get one. And I think that's what it's going to take to get people back in offices, especially like the the widget factory that you're talking about, because, you know, they are next to each other. They are in close contact. They can't close the door to their office in most cases and, and separate themselves. So I think getting some form of immunity through a vaccine is what it's going to take. No, I, think the, I think by fall we'll be there. I think we'll be able to do that. I think the complicating factor is going to be how quickly we can get a vaccine approved for kids um, with, uh, with part of the issue of getting people back to work is getting uh, parents back to work, particularly if they're at home managing younger children. And if those children can't be vaccinated, it makes it difficult for the parents possibly to peel away from the home if schools aren't open or there's no childcare otherwise available for the kids that they're comfortable putting the kids in. So I think part of the equation, I think an important part is going to be just how quickly we can close out the clinical trials um, for the vaccines uh, for teens and, and down so that um, they can get vaccinated too. So schools um, can open up full-time daycare centers can open up full-time, which allows kids to get back out of the house full-time, which then allows their caregivers slash parents to then get out of the home and return to work without worrying about who's caring for their kids during the day. No doubt. And the trials for peds has really just barely started. So I'm not sure when we'll have that data. I think it's going to be a while now. And that certainly would push things for those people out past the end of the summer. So I'd like to get your pers- both your perspectives on the following question. I'll be interested to see to what extent they match up or not. When, when workers do start to return on mass, I understand that's an amorphous term, but let, let's roll with it anyway. When, when workers do return sort of in, in, in sufficient numbers, do, do you, how would you advise offices to look or change in order to maximize, uh, maximize safety or at least max or at least balance safety with the business objectives of the business? From a health standpoint, if you think about the company that has an entire floor in an office building full of cubicles, it makes me wish once again that I'd been in the plexiglass business when this thing started because I can just envision plexiglass from the top of the cubicle to the ceiling or at least another five feet up and creating a a cocoon where these people will sit. Um, I don't know that that's something that's going to be feasible 
I don't know that it's something that companies are going to want to do or be able to do. And I could just see employees balking at the whole idea. They're going to be sticking their head around the cubicle, talking to Joe next door. Uh, so the company's going to be wondering why I spend these thousands of dollars on all this stuff. Um, but I think that's something you may very well see in that situation. I don't, I don't know how you can bring people back into that until you do have the vaccines. I don't know that you can really prepare for that in the factory setting, the same thing. I mean, you're not going to put plexiglass between all these people. It's just not going to happen. And uh, again, if you did, they would, you know, ignore it pretty much, I'm sure. Uh, So I I think really it, it comes down to getting people immune. I don't, I don't see any good way to change things in the work environment that's going to allow this to happen without people being immune. I think we, I think we'll be living with masks for a while as well. I oh, think, yeah, yeah oh, I yeah. think that we will um, be seeing masks out in public in general and, and on a smaller scale in the workplace um, uh, for the foreseeable future until we have, I'm not sure if there ever going to be a magic switch where the CD says, you know, you know, masks off today, but so I think gradually over time, we'll see a reduction in use. But I think for now in the foreseeable future, at least through the end of this year, for certain, um, masks is just, is just something we're just going to have to to deal with, particularly as people are coming back to work. Are the employees going to push back on that and say, you can't make me wear a mask? I'll tell them you don't have to work here then. I mean, that's where we're, you know, we're at will employees. And so my, you know, my rules, uh, you know, like her to go find a job go find a job somewhere else. And I think, and, and, and there are um, lots of stories over the last year of employees who have pushed back on that, of employers who have pushed back on it, who have um, had, um, there was a story I read uh, uh, just the other day of a, a beer hall in Columbus that had all of their employees walk out um, in mass. They said, we feel this is an unsafe workplace. You don't t- you're not taking COVID seriously. You're not protecting our safety adequately. And every employee quit and they've been shut down since. So I think the I think one of the telling, one of the lasting stories I think that's going to come out of the pandemic will be, I think sadly, we know that not every business is going to survive COVID. Some will never reopen. Um, what I hope is that if karma and the universe works the way I, I I think it should work is that those businesses that don't survive the pandemic and don't reopen are the ones that um, didn't take COVID seriously, denied that it was a reality. Uh, bosses who called it the China virus, didn't enforce mass rules, didn't enforce social distancing, otherwise didn't do everything that they needed to do to protect the health, safety, and welfare of their employees, their customers, people that interacted with their business on a day-to-day basis, they'll be the ones that close and the ones that are able to open up and thrive in a post-COVID world, whatever that is, are the ones that took the virus seriously um, and did the things necessary to protect the health and safety of, the, of their employees. And I agree that the masks are going to be around in some to some degree for the rest of my life, probably. But, um, you know, if, if just masking was going to be enough to get these people back to work, we could have done that before. So I think the combination of being smart, being a, getting a vaccine, being smart, wearing a mask, acting like you care about the people around you and that kind of thing, which is a huge part of this, just that little bit. Uh, I think if we can find a way to get those things in combination together, I think people could go back to work. Yeah, I agree. That's the other lasting lesson to this whole thing is just how 
freaking selfish people are. It's just yes. it's just appalling the selfishness that, that 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 this has exhibited in people. People tell me all the time, you know, you can't make me wear a mask. I have a, a right not to wear a mask, and I tell them, your right stops when your spittle hits me in the face. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, John, John let me. I want to. I want to pause on that because I'm. I'm curious. Where is the law right now in terms of does it does it tend to favor employees right now or employers or is it all over the map? What what is the posture of the law right now in terms of responsibilities of employers versus freedom to operate versus at will employment? Yeah, it's it, it's a bit all over the map. There has not yet been a uniform national standard that's been uh, issued to govern uh, COVID safety in the workplace. OSHA, the Occupational uh, Safety and Health Administration, the federal agency that governs workplace safety, um, has not issued a uniform national standard on COVID or, or pandemic safety. They have issued a series of kind of informal best practice guidance to say, this is what we think uh, you you should be doing in order to uh, provide a self a safe and healthy workplace workplace for your employees, employers even without a, a, a COVID standard uh, have a under OSHA a general duty to provide a safe and healthy workplace for their employees, and so uh, a lot of people, including myself, interpret that general duty as encompassing kind of the best practices that OSHA says employers should per, should do, which is, you know, masking, social distancing, uh, not coming to work when you're sick, uh, sanitizing surfaces, um, uh, and things like that. All the things that we think of when we think about, um, you know, COVID safety uh, in public spaces. Um, but there isn't a Uniform national standards. State rules are all over the map. Some states have, for example, you know, uniform masking requirements. Some states, you know, don't, and some states are in the middle. Um, and then I think what I think what is really driving a lot of what employers are doing, or a lot of a lot of what is protecting employees, is the PR hit that businesses are suffering when they get called out for not doing this the right way, when the employees quit in mass, when the employee complains about. Uh, you know, you're not, you're, you're allowing people to come in without masks and they complain and then they're fired and then they hire a lawyer and the lawyer files a lawsuit and issues a press release. And now, uh, you know, that employer has the scarlet letter for not taking COVID seriously. So that's a lot of it is PR driven or reputationally driven. Uh, uh, some of it is driven by lawsuits that, empl- that employees can file for things like, you know, whistleblower protections when they're fired for raising safety issues. And a lot less of it is driven by, um, what the government has said employers must do because those rules are are frankly kind of fuzzy. And 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 what about what about protections for people that are specifically vulnerable? I had an idea or thought, and I say this as completely a non-lawyer, so I'm probably entirely off the reservation. But could could we see something along the lines of where employees start to claim that they're covered effectively under the Americans with Disabilities Act? because of their particular vulnerability to COVID and therefore employers have a duty to go to extraordinary lengths to protect such individuals, particularly if coronavirus is going to be one of these things like the flu that's just going to be with us for a long time. Um, you're, you're in the ballpark. 
uh, you're in the ballpark. Um, yes, employees who are at high risk for complications from COVID-19 are protected by the Americans Disabilities Act. The employer's obligation is to, once they become aware that an employee may need a reasonable accommodation, and it's, that's the standard. The standard is a reasonable accommodation, not extraordinary lengths. So once the employer becomes aware of the employee's need or potential need for a reasonable accommodation for a, a physical or mental impairment, uh, the employer has to engage in what the law refers to as an interactive process with the employee. That's a dialogue, a discussion, a conversation. Talk to the employee about how can we accommodate your medical issue. Um, and then the accommodations can really run the gamut as long as it's reasonable and doesn't impose an undue hardship on the employer. So it could be a work from home arrangement on a temporary basis. It could be a, uh, we will put you in a different work area where you're not near people or where you're more isolated for people or where you might not be exposed to uh, uh, the virus from other people. Um, it might be, we're going to get you a different, uh, instead of a mask, we're going to get you a respirator or some other kind of gear to wear that's going to better protect you from an airborne virus. It may be that the only accommodation you can offer someone is a temporary um, unpaid leave of absence. And so maybe it's where, you know, there's no way to restructure your job. We have nowhere else to put you. This isn't something that can be done remotely. So the best we can do for you is say, you know, go sit on the sidelines for, you know, 30 day increments and we'll revisit this in 30 days. And we'll see if at that point we're in a situation where you feel comfortable coming back. But And in that case, it's not an indefinite leave. It's a kind of short-term temporary, and it may ultimately result in that employee no longer being employed um, because this thing is just stretching out now, stretched out for a year. If somebody went on a temporary leave of absence a year ago because they were at high risk for COVID uh, complications, if they contracted the virus, uh, the employer's uh, responsibility to accommodate that employee would have expired, you know, months ago. So Jim, let me, let me turn back to the medical side. Um, uh, somebody uh, has an employee that is at particular risk, whatever reason, maybe they're diabetic, maybe they have one of the other comorbidities. Um, from a medical standpoint, what would, what would be your advice? And, and let's assume they, let's assume that working from home is not an option, right? I imagine the easiest thing to do is just send people home. We get that, but if, if, if sending somebody home to work is not, is not a viable option, in your mind, what are, what are some, some reasonable and effective steps that an employer in an office environment might be able to take to, uh, to protect that employee? Yeah, that's really tough because I don't know that there is a really good way to protect them. Uh, I've, Going back to something I said earlier, I think if people could protect them, they would have been working all along. Uh, so if you were going to do anything, I think isolating them, John mentioned putting them in a, a different part of the office or something like that where they're not around everybody else. If that's feasible, that can be good. Um, they still got to get in and out of the building without spending much time conversing. Uh, so that could be a problem. But again, in a in a masked world, if everybody's wearing a mask in that situation, it shouldn't be too bad. <clears throat> but I think isolation basically is, or separation, is probably the only way to go about doing that. I can't think of how else you'd pull that off. Uh, really. So I wanna, let, me, let me ask another question about, about the vaccines, because um, 
the, the vaccine the vaccines are 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 they're great they're in many ways a miracle of modern medicine we weren't supposed to be able to make vaccines like this True. in a short period of time literally I, I think that it's it it rivals the moonshot in terms of a technological advance um, it's that big a leap forward in that short a period of time but the numbers I'm seeing is that the vaccine promises something on the order of 90% immunity. And and to me, 90% immunity is great, but that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the same thing as, immune, as a vaccine for measles or polio, which have a much higher, um, much higher immunity rate. And I'm curious, you know, one, A, do you, do, do you see the same data that I do? And B, does that mean that, you know, does that then do you agree that 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 um, that requires an additional level of caution that, you know, 90 percent is great, but it doesn't that doesn't mean you just have a get out of jail free card and go back to normal? No, it doesn't. And people don't think about that a lot of times. That still leaves the Pfizer and Moderna report 94, 95 percent. So but that's still five or six percent chance of getting it. And if you're in that group of people who could have a really terrible outcome, although anyone can, that you might expect a bad outcome, then that's that's a pretty decent risk. And with the J&J vaccine that was just approved, they really show closer to 60% preventing infection, but above 90 for preventing severe illness and hospitalization, that kind of thing, which is very important, obviously. But it's important to remember that this is not 100%, and that's why we still have to distance. We still have to mask. We still have to be smart, use hand sanitizer, and do the things that we don't like doing that we've gotten kind of accustomed to doing. And that's going to hopefully take care of the other 5% of that. But it's it's very true that these people are still going to be at risk to some degree, and so they're going to have to be careful. Yeah, and I think about that from a personal standpoint. Um you know, I'm a big baseball fan. I used to go to a lot of Gwinnett Stripers games. And, um, you know, how, if, if you're only 90% immune, if you're surrounded by thousands of people, right, statistically speaking, that virus is still there, right? And oh, then you're there. banking, right. you're banking on your, on your nine shots out of 10 or, or 19 shots out of 20 that you're not gonna, you're not gonna get it, right? And to me, as much as I love baseball, um, the, the numbers, the numbers don't add up, right? If no, I go to 20 games a year, my expected infection rate is one, is one time a year, just going to 20 games. Well, and the numbers add up even worse when we consider that there's a large percent of the large percentage of the population that say they're not going to get the vaccine anyway, when yep. it's available to them. So when we start adding, you know, vaccine hesitancy into the equation, that 95% number might be 95% for you, but it's not going to be 95% among the population because 100% is not going to get the vaccine. And so if we need, if we're looking at north of 75 or 80% to reach herd immunity, but 40% say they're not going to get the vaccine, there's going to be a huge gap that, that, that may prevent us from ever reaching herd immunity, particularly as these variants ramp up and the virus might becoming more virulent, more contagious. It's, it's, a, it's a legitimate concern as we try and navigate our way out of this thing. Well, more virulent. I mean, more contagious, but no sign yet that it's more virulent. Luckily. Correct. Correct. And that's that's a, been a blessing. That's been a blessing. So, so John, you, you jumped into a question I wanted to make sure that I cover, and I think it's going to be one of the hardest questions in the podcast. And that is, as an employer, can I make you showing proof of vaccination a, a, a condition of continued employment? 
for the sake of my other employees or just frankly the sake of the own of my continuity of my own operations uh the 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 short answer is yes okay but the, but, but the but the longer answer is it's yes but you must make allowance for those people that cannot get the vaccine either because they have an underlying uh, physical or mental impairment, a disability for which the vaccine is contraindicated. They say, I have a medical issue. I, so you need to provide me an accommodation for that medical issue to your mandatory vaccination policy. Or for an employee that holds a sincerely held religious belief, observance, or practice for which they cannot be vac- they, they can't get a vaccine, and an employer has to consider an accommodation for that as well. And you know, in both those cases, the accommodation doesn't have to be and probably shouldn't be, you know, come to work anyway. You know, we're requiring proof of we're, we're requiring proof of vaccination to work. Um, you know, come to work even though you can't meet this policy. But you have to go through the same and interact process as we talked about earlier. Talk to the employee, figure out what accommodation you can make. And the accommodation might at the end of the day might be we just can't accommodate this because we have a legitimate business interest in protecting our other employees from the vaccine and you just can't come back to work. But you have to at least go through the process with the employee to figure out whether there is um, whether there is an accommodation um, you can make. But let me also add, and I think what complicates or maybe uncomplicates the equation is I don't think it's as I don't think the question is is as easy as can you require a vaccine or proof of a vaccine as a condition of employment? Because I think just because you can do it, the law says you can, doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Um, I think, you know, if, if you look at the data that's out there, as I mentioned earlier, we know about 60% say they will absolutely under every set of circumstances get the vaccine when they're able to do so. There's another you know, 20% or so that say they will not get the vaccine, whether it's because of a medical issue or a religious belief, or because, you know, they were tinfoil on their heads and they think the government's implanting 5G trackers in them through the vaccine or for whatever reason. Yeah. Bill not- Gates doesn't have enough money, right? He, exactly. he needs to track what I'm doing here in Shambly, Georgia. Exactly. And, then there's, and then there's 20% that are kind of undecided on the fence. And to me, I think if an employer has a mandatory policy, thou shalt get the vaccine when you can, I think you are going to lose the 20% that are never going to get the vaccine, whether the reason's legitimate or illegitimate. You're going to lose them as employees. You're going to risk alienating some percentage of your employees that are going to get the vaccine anyway, because they're going to view it as you're going to view, they're going to view you as too intrusive, up in their medical business, invading their privacy, what have you. So you risk alienating a percentage of employees that are going to get the shot anyway. And so what I think employers should be doing is rather than pissing off a whole bunch of your employees and not and and at the end of the day not changing any of their behaviors, what you should be focusing on is that 20 or so percent in the middle and arm them with education resources information as to the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and why it's in theirs and everybody's best interest for them to get the vaccine and try and push some of them push some of them over to the yeah we're going to get vaccinated side of the equation so okay good so that's that segues nicely so so jim um i i you know, we, we all we all know there's a there's a big anti anti vax movement. It existed before coronavirus. Coronavirus, like so many things, has just has just ramped it up. 
you're a medical educator as well as a, a practitioner of medicine, and I'm sure you've run into this directly. How do you, what, what have you found is the best way to educate people about vaccines so that at least they remain open-minded to it? Or conversely, in your experience, once people walk in, they say they're anti-vax, that conversation's already over, you move on. Well, I think it's very clear cut. There's very little gray area that I've seen in having that conversation. If you're talking to a patient and they've never done vaccines and they certainly aren't going to do this one that was developed in one year, which, like you said, is a, a world record in many, many ways. I don't think there's anything that I'm going to say to these people that's going to convince them to get a vaccine. They're not going to come walk into my office totally against it and me say anything at all that's going to make them leave there thinking it's a good idea to go get this. I don't, I, I can't imagine. I've never turned anybody around yet, whether it was about tetanus, diphtheria, it doesn't matter. And I don't think it's going to be about this. And if it were going to be about a vaccine, it wouldn't be about a vaccine that came out in 12 months. So I, I don't, I don't think that's a problem, but I do think that education is the key to all of this. And all I can do and what I try to do is to, let them understand the science as I understand it and explain it to them as best I can. And then they leave and don't get the vaccine anyway. So maybe an, an idea might be, maybe you turn it around. If, if we, if we accept the fact that there's just going to be, there, there is going to be a, a material portion of the population that simply will not get the vax, the vaccine, just end of discussion. Right. Right. Um, is is instead then maybe the educational path to to educate those who are vaccinated to simply enable them or even those who aren't vaccinated to just enable them enable people to then protect themselves right at least if you're not going to get the vaccine if you're you know to use the, if you're if you're yeah if, if you're gonna if you're gonna do something that runs against medical advice anyway at least stack the cards in your favor as much as you can, even though you're making a decision that is, that is questionable from an evidence-based perspective. Although I would bet you that the anti-vaxxers have a pretty substantial overlap with the anti-maskers. So that's my gut anyway. I haven't looked at any data, but my gut tells me the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers, if they're, if they're a Venn diagram, it's going to be pretty close to a circle, uh, just one circle. So yeah, I, think well, I do. All, I do think there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, there, there is certainly they're... a lot of overlap. But for example, as we just talked about, these vaccines, while miraculous, are only ninety to ninety-five percent effective. And and when I say that, it reminds me. You know, I used to work in Russia, and I had a friend who worked for uh, Brinks in Russia, and, and you know, Brinks is the armored car company. He told me that that you don't realize how little of your body a bulletproof vest protects until you put one on, right? <laughs> And you don't realize how little a, a vaccine protects you until you kind of run the math and you see what 90 to 95% is. It's not a get out of jail free card. So maybe the education process is to, okay, you know, the, the, the people who are, who are not going to mask or not going to vaccinate have simply made a choice, have simply made a choice that they're just going to, they're just going to run that risk and that for good or ill, you can judge them if you want, but they're going to make that choice on behalf of other people that they encounter too, right or rightly or wrongly, that's just the mechanics. We're not going to lock up 30 million Americans. We don't have the capacity to do it. So, um, 
uh, is then is then the the best ROI in education to just continue to educate the people that are willing to abide by the protocols and listen to advice to say, hey, look, this is out there. This is the best. Just keep wearing the mask and keep putting up barriers and keep socially distancing and keep being OCD about washing your hands. Is that the path to education that has a chance of being effective? I think it is. And and like John mentioned, you've got that group that you need to continue to, to educate and try to push towards a vaccine. But the whole thing is we've got this huge inoculum of coronavirus floating around us. And if we do get a ton of people, whatever percentage it is, vaccinated, then we're going to reduce that entire inoculum. And so the amount of virus being spewed at the Gwinnett Stripers game and they really could have come up with a better name than that. I do think <laughs> different but, podcasts, but I I like the Gwinnett Braves as they I were. But I did too. But if then you, the whole inoculum of virus floating around you is less at that ball game, and that's what this is all about. It's about trying to be exposed to less virus. And so if 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 we can get people to do it, the ones we need to concentrate on, I think, are the ones that have a little bit of a chance of going to get it. And, and I think it's a, enough of a percentage that we're going to be able to be safe doing things, albeit potentially with masks in the future. So, so Jim, a, a question I have from a legal and business standpoint is it, it, it occurs to me that employers might be in a little bit of a no-win situation because you, you really, you can't, you can't make people vaccinate. Frankly, I think if you, if you really tried to force them, they'd just falsify the documentation. <laughs> if it really came down to that, They'd print out something on the internet. You'd have no way of verifying it. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I'm vaccinated. I'm good. Um, uh, so, so employers have a duty to protect the minority. They have a duty to, they have a duty to protect uh, all their employees to some extent, but make special accommodations and also protect, for lack of a better term, human rights. I mean, where's the part of that Venn diagram where they're safe? I mean, if I'm an employer, I'm kind of thinking, you know what? Shut the whole damn thing down. Everybody can work from home or Starbucks or do whatever we do. And then we'll get together for an outdoor picnic once a year if we need to. I mean, as an employer, how do you, how do you make, where do you find that safe harbor? I, I, I can't disagree with you. I mean, what, what I've preached to at least my clients that have listened to me over the last year is being as flexible as possible, meeting employees where they are and just doing the best you can with you know being as flexible as you can and that might be uh and and in that case you might be right it might be shutting the whole thing down if you can shut it down um and having people work remote and then you and then whenever uh the cdc says you know pandemic over we can talk about how we uh kind of put the remote genie back into the bottle if that's what businesses want to do otherwise i think in large part it's never going to go fully back in um, but, but, but I think you're right. Employers are in a, in a, uh, in a very tough spot here in terms of, um, you know, no, no mandates from the government in terms of w- what to do or largely no mandates. A lot of employees who are scared to death to come into work, um, and businesses need to operate. And if you can operate without, you know, without operating in person, I see very little downside in doing that, at least in the short term. So uh, in addition, I mean, are there, are there, are there other kind of tools that companies can manage this? I mean, the, one of the things that's been exposed in the insurance industry, I know you do some work there, is, you know, does, 
it, does a pandemic lead to a legitimate business interruption claim, for example? Is that is that risk potentially insurable, right? Does it go through workman's comp? Does it go through something else? Do you have to buy a special kind of insurance? Do you, do you self-insure with a captive? Are, are there financial tools available to, to, to do this? Or is that still a a work in progress or is that just crazy talk? uh, No, it's a work. It's a work in progress. I think the insurance companies will spend, you know, hundreds of millions or billions in legal fees over the next, you know, half decade to decade sorting out the issue of to what extent um, uh, COVID closures fall under business interruption policies. Cause there's going to be, there's a ton of those claims out there it's largely unknown and we're going to take the, it's going to take the courts years to sort it out with lawyers uh, really the only ones who get rich in that equation, trying to answer that question Um, on the workers comp side. um, I, while a workplace exposure or someone got sick from COVID and they could prove that they got it at work, that would be a coverable claim under workers compensation insurance for the employee. But I question, how do you prove that something happened at work? When we look at how, you know, widespread this virus is in the community. We're only at work so many hours a day. They should presumably have uh, uh, protective measures in place in the workplace. And so, how do you, you know, if somebody gets sick, how do you establish that that exposure happened at work, such that you can establish the causal connection for purposes of establishing uh, one's eligibility to collect workers' compensation? And so, uh, you know, maybe if there's 20 people in a conference room and all 20 of them you know, come down with COVID in the span of, you know, a couple of days or a week, maybe that's easier from a causation standpoint. Um, maybe not, but uh, uh, but just the employee who gets sick and then says, well, I was at work last week and so-and-so had COVID a week ago and now I have COVID and so I got it at the workplace, but I was also at the grocery store in Starbucks at my kid's Little League game. Um, and then I went to Target three times last week too. Um you know how do you, how do you prove where that exposure came from to establish the causation necessary to collect workers' compensation? So these there's there's really there's really no easy answers here, unfortunately. So that I mean that leads into another another question. Um, we're talking with Jim Morrow and John Hyman, and the topic is should I have my employees return to the office? Um, Jim, is is contact tracing something that in an ideal world would be advisable for? companies to encourage and, and implement, you know, if, if uh, uh, let's just take Amazon, for example, they certainly have the capacity to build a, a, a contact tracing app if they chose to, um, you know, should companies have a contract, a contact tracing app that might help them identify exactly what John is discussing, you know, where is the vector of an infection into an office to establish, you know, did it come from the office or someplace else? I think contact tracing is one of the most important parts of trying to control this entire thing. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to answer the legal question of how do you do that without infringing on people's rights, and I'll leave that to John. But if you look at the way that we can control the spread is through contact, is testing and contract contact tracing. And if we're doing that right, then we, if we had done that right nine months ago, then we'd have had a lot lower cases and fewer deaths and so forth. I think contact tracing is critical, whether it's in the in the work environment or school environment or wherever it might be. I think it's one of the most important parts. So we need to be able to do that. People need to allow that to happen uh, because this pandemic is really a, a training ground for the next pandemic. 
because it might not be in my lifetime. I'd like to think I'd still be here for the next one, but I don't want to be here for the next one. If you know what right. I mean, <laughs> um, kind of a double-edged sword there. Um, but I, I think contact tracing is everything when it comes to trying to control this. So John, again, the hard, the hard question to you, if I, <laughs> if I'm asking my employees to return to the office, but I say you can only do it if you agree to put in this contact tracing app, um, that, that at least is going to track you while you're in the office or maybe not, I'm not sure. Is, is that something a company can impose? Uh, they can and a lot have, um, okay. as long as it's, as long as it's done with disclosure and consent, um, there's really no privacy concerns. Um, the employee can always choose not to have the app installed and then not return to the office. And if it's a 100% in-person work environment, that might mean, that might mean they're looking for work elsewhere, but in a, in a country that has at-will employment, that's just the name of the game. So um, perfectly within an employer's right to require it, an employee's right to agree to accept it or not accept it, and then live with the consequences that flow from that decision. You know, we are uh, are running out of time, and you know, we we could easily have made this a two parter or even a three parter. It's obviously it's a multi layered question that you know the answers are 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 difficult and evolving. If people would like to contact you, maybe those a question that we didn't cover or a follow up. Uh, can they do that? And, and what's the best way to do that? John, let me let you go first. Um, the best way to find me is um, through, my, as, through my blog, which really kind of collects all my contact info. I'm not really hard to find. You could just Google John Hyman Employment Lawyer and you'll find me everywhere on Twitter and LinkedIn and my law firm and everywhere else. But if people want information or how to contact me, they can just go to ohioemployerlawblog.com and all the information is, is collated there. Jim? Uh, you can get me, uh, probably emails, the better way to do it. That's drjim at toyourhealth.md or on Twitter um, at toyourhealthmd. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank John Hyman and Jim Morrow so much for joining us and sharing their expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review of your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.